Are any of you vivid dreamers? I feel like I almost never dream anymore. I, I rarely remember, well, they say we all dream, it's just whether or not you remember it. There have been times in my life where like, I've had dreams that are so vivid, something good or bad happened in them, and I wake up either really happy or really sad. <laughs> and it takes like half a day to get over that. But it doesn't happen hardly at all, very often at all anymore. It's, it's funny in my family, though, and it always makes me chuckle. If anyone ever says what they dreamed about the night before, Abigail, who is four now, will go on about an eight or nine minute rant about her dream. <laughs> and it just gets more elaborate as she tells the story of what she dreamed about. And I'm 99% sure she's making all of it up as she goes along. <laughs> and it's just kind of fun. But Daniel 7 is Daniel writing the account of a dream that God gave to him. And it is a dream of the future. A couple years ago, I, I did a short series in the book of Daniel, just touching on a few different topics. And I covered a little bit of Daniel 7, but mostly in, in Daniel 2 and how... God had given this vision to Nebuchadnezzar, and then he also gives a vision to Daniel. You think in the context of this, Daniel is in captivity. Daniel is still serving God under a foreign king. He is still living for God, and God is working through him. But all of this is not the way I'm sure he thought his life would play out at the start, being an Israelite, being part of the children of God and that to live the majority of his life in captivity. And so God gives him these visions in showing him what will happen in the end. This isn't the way it's always going to be. And this is important specifically because at the start of Daniel you see when Israel is captured and Nebuchadnezzar takes the things from the temple back to his own God's temple, that these are these are things that in their time would have not only been humiliating for the people, but to everyone that heard the stories, a humiliation to the God of Israel. And as Daniel wrote this book, that's how he starts it out. And then everything throughout the book proves the superiority of Israel's God, that he is God, that he can reveal dreams, that he can shut the mouths of lions, that he can keep the men from the fire. All of these things that God does as for his faithful followers through this book show his superiority. And, and one of those is of the telling of the future. And so it starts out there in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. We said that we've already seen dreams in the book from Nebuchadnezzar in both chapter 2 and chapter 4. And now God gives this dream to Daniel. It was this, this vision that God gave him as he slept. Um, this revelation came to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, which was 553 B.C. Now, uh, modern uh, secular scholars would say that Daniel was probably written around 160 BC because there's so much in it that points to prophecy that there's no way it could have been written earlier but we believe that 
our God can tell the future because he's not constrained by time. And so he is able to, to write these things that haven't happened yet. And this comes 50 years after the dream that he had given to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel would have been around 68 years old when he had this dream. Uh, so chronologically in the book, it would happen between chapters 4 and chapter 5. Uh, as he introduces it there, being in the first year of Belshazzar. And so then Daniel wakes up and he writes down what he saw. Verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So Daniel refers to himself in the third person in the first six chapters of the book, but here and from here going forward, he will refer to himself in the first person. I think he's doing this because as God gives these prophetic prophecies to him, that it gives the idea that this was me, this I had this vision, God told me this, this isn't hearsay or third person, uh, but this was what I saw. And Daniel sees the winds stir up the great sea. Um, in Daniel's mind, the great sea would have been the Mediterranean but is, is stirred up by these four winds or spirits of heaven. The sea in scripture and in most uh, ancient thinking there in the Near East uh, would have represented humanity, like this mass of, of humanity, the populace of the earth, all people. Um, the Mediterranean world seems to be particularly in view here since the sea he would have known was the Mediterranean and the peoples that lived around it. But the wind represents God's power expressed in judgment using heavenly and earthly forces from all directions to influence the nations as he alone wills. Well, this was interesting that, you know, you look throughout scripture, God often uses the wind as a means to attain uh, his ends, that he has created this earth and that he uses parts of his creation to do uh, his, his bidding. There are over 90 uses in the Old Testament and 30 in the New Testament where God uses the wind um, in events where he is, is intervening in the lives of men. And in Daniel, the wind is, is always used to represent the sovereign power of God, which is the viewpoint of the book, again, that the God of Israel is sovereign, that, that it may look like he was defeated, but he is above all others. And then verse 3, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. So those four beasts that he sees coming out of the sea represent four different kings. They personify the nations over which they rule, uh, which will become clear as he explains exactly what he sees and they, all of these beasts have anomalies and their, their characters are presented in these abnormalities that they aren't what we would think of when we think of a certain animal we, we can picture it in our mind and, and know what characteristics it has and uh, they personify that but they have other things too you wouldn't normally see with them and it, it's interesting here that he brings these, these four beasts in and how directly this relates with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. 
you remember what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about in chapter 2? No, that wasn't a dream. That was the, the Belshazzar actually saw it happen. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he can't remember. And he's going to kill all of the wise men because no one can. They're used to hearing a dream, and they would just come up with an explanation. True or not, it would, you know, make the king feel better. Well, Nebuchadnezzar because God has put something in his mind that has stirred his spirit to the point where he, can, he can't find rest or peace because he can't remember what happened. And he is asking that the dream be told to him and the interpretation be given. The dream was the statue. The statue that was made of different materials and it stands tall until this rock is hurled at its feet and it crushes the statue and the rock remains forever. Do you remember what the interpretation of the dream is? Yes. That each of the different materials was a different kingdom. The rock is the kingdom of God that destroys all the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God lasts forever. So again, when you look at Daniel and his position, even when he was young, he was probably 18 or 19 when he interpreted that dream from Nebuchadnezzar, possibly a little older but I think in that 18, 19 year range, that in captivity, he hasn't been there for, bless you, hasn't been there for very long, that God gives the king this vision and in what peace that would provide for Daniel and knowing the kingdom of God is coming and it will last forever. The God that he serves is going to reign forever. And so as we begin this dream, it is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's in that it, it lays out this prophecy of kingdoms to come and of God's ultimate kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar saw it from the, the viewpoint of one of those kings and the, the terror of this rock coming. Daniel is getting it from the perspective of someone that serves God and the joy and the peace of knowing who is, is really in charge. So verse 4 he begins to describe the beast here. He said, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind was also given to it. So this first beast looked like a lion, but it also had wings uh, in numerous places in Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Habakkuk. Nebuchadnezzar is pictured as a both a lion and an eagle. And so this this first kingdom, like the head in the statue, is represented by Babylon. Um, what it means that its wings were plucked, I don't exactly know. Some people think this is where um, God judged Nebuchadnezzar and made him crawl around in the grass and eat grass and lose his mind and that he became much more humble and humane after God had judged him. Um, I think that's probably a pretty good interpretation. Regardless, we see that this beast, as ferocious as it is, it it is not in charge. It is able to have its its wings plucked from it. Oh, and also another, uh, you've probably seen 
pictures of them. They, you know, we have some artifacts still left and, and other descriptions that in the gates of Babylon, they had huge winged lions that guarded the gates. And so that is this picture that, that he has given. Uh, one of the other interpretations of the wings being plucked is the way that Babylon deteriorated after Nebuchadnezzar's death. Regardless, the, the lion there is Babylon in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much, and eat. And so this, this bear, the, the Old Testament writers spoke of the bear as the most formidable beast of prey in Palestine after the lion. The bear that, that Daniel saw appeared to be stronger on one side than the other, and this probably reflects on the superior strength of the Persian part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so that is what, what this kingdom is. And the three ribs in this bear's teeth probably stand for the three nations or the three parts, the one nation that the Medo-Persia Empire had devoured, um, was devouring or would devour. When Daniel saw this vision, Medo-Persia had not yet overthrown Babylon. So perhaps these were nations of less prominence that it had conquered. Some scholars think that the ribs refer to Babylon, Lydian, and the Egyptian empires, all of which the Medo-Persian empire conquered eventually. Um, and Daniel hears these voices, we don't know if these are angelic voices or, or who this is, but they're encouraging the, the bear to devour much meat. And this probably indicates that it would, it was yet to subdue many nations. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire ruled for 208 years before Alexander the Great toppled it in 331 BC. And its geographic extent was far, far reaching. Uh, the leadership in the ancient Near East passed from the Assyrians to Babylon in 612 BC and from Babylon to Medo-Persia in 539 and from Medo-Persia to Greece in 331. So when we see in the next verse 6, after this I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So this third kingdom, as just listed in this view that he is prophesying about, is, is Greece. Dominion was given to it. Again, I think it's important to remember that this is, God had given dominion to Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, unlike any other ruler before or after, that, that he had dominion over the animals, that God had, had given him this high place, and it was for his glory that he was, he was using him. And likewise, in these following nations, that this is God who is giving the dominion. And the Greek Empire had the characteristics of this animal that uh, Daniel sees in his vision hundreds of years before. That you know, a leopard or possibly a panther uh, isn't as ferocious as a lion or a bear. What is the leopard's, what does it make up for that it doesn't have the strength of a lion? Is fast. And the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered was had never been seen before and, and wasn't seen after. And that he 
he conquered so much and so quickly. It is like a, a leopard devouring its prey. And given this vision here that it had wings in addition to looking like a leopard, that the wings would have been thought of to make it even faster than what you would normally think a leopard would have. I read a quote this week. It said that with swiftness of a leopard, Alexander the Great conquered most of the civilized world all the way from Macedonia to Africa and eastward to India. And that was all between 334 and 331 B.C. You think of how long it took just to get anywhere during that time, let alone to get a whole army. But he was, he was taking his armies and conquering at that speed. That he, he went all the way through Greece into Africa and Egypt and then east into India. That is an enormous amount of land that he conquered in, in a very, very quick time. It went on and said, The lightning character of his conquests is without precedent in the ancient world. And this is fully keeping with the image of speed embodied in the leopard itself and the four wings on its back. Um, having multiple heads suggested intelligent direction. But Greece also had four governmental divisions with one person heading each division. Uh, after Alexander died, following Greece's defeat at Ipsus, in 301 BC, the, the Greek Empire was divided into four parts under Alexander's four generals. And the exact identification of those rulers is debatable because it took about 20 years for it to be successfully divided, but it, that, that is what happened. And it's, it's interesting, again, this is 250 years before that happened, that, that Daniel is given this vision by God that this is what this kingdom will look like and this is what will happen. Verse 7, and after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So most people would agree that this fourth beast is representation of the Roman Empire. In contrast to Greece, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire was slow. It, it began in 241 BC with the occupation of Sicily, gradually expanded throughout the whole Mediterranean world, uh, included Western Europe, including Britain, Gaul, and Spain. Or a few years ago, my dad took us on he took us on a cruise that had started in Dover in England, and there's a castle there. And when you go to the castle, the Dover Castle, there is a guard tower about 100 yards away from it that was built by the Romans uh, in around 100 BC, I think, somewhere in there. I mean, it's over 2,000 years old, this tower that stands there. You think of how big, when you're standing there on the island of Great Britain, how far away you are from, from Rome. I mean, this. This was huge, but it also went down into Egypt, and we know, of course, that Israel was part of the Roman Empire, and even farther east than that. This was, again, an enormous empire. The Roman Empire formally ended in the West in AD 410 when the Visigoths sacked and attacked Rome. 
its government influence persisted as late as AD 1453 when the last Roman ruler died in a battle in Constantinople. It's interesting about the Roman Empire here is that Daniel doesn't compare this fourth beast that he sees with any known animal. It, it was unique, it was dreadful, it was terrifying, it was extremely strong. Uh, its large iron teeth chewed up what it attacked, its feet crushed and trampled everything left by the former beasts. Something I, I skipped over there. It's interesting, you see that this prophecy of the things that are to come, and we know that that God is is in control, that he does have dominion. Um, are there ways that you see him work through the empires of the kings that he sets up and, and tears down through history, through through now? I mean, any ways that you see... I have one way specifically I'm thinking of, but there are lots of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, and you definitely see that in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, that he he did it his way. He sees the power of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. He's impressed by it, continues to do it his own way. God tells Daniel to tell him, you better knock it off. <laughs> he doesn't. God brings him around through humiliating him. Yep. That's actually exactly what I was getting at. You look at the, these nations, um, Greece conquered so much. Latin is very similar to Greek, Greek in a lot of ways, but the Romans a lot of people conquered like the Greeks and they would set up these Hellenistic cities where they taught everyone to speak Greece, Greek and they were like little beacons of Greek thinking in every area the Romans didn't care about that at all they just wanted to conquer and for everything to come back to Rome in taxes and so the Greeks conquered all this stuff they spread the Greek language then the Romans come along and they conquer and they build all these roads and so now you have a common language and roads that lead everywhere and some civil order, while it was still dangerous to travel, you see that from Paul, you know, he was constantly in danger, but that he was able to go places because of the kingdoms that God had set up and he was able to communicate with people because of the kingdoms that God had set up. I think we need to keep that in mind with, with our own nation that I don't know what, what the future holds for us. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We pray it will be today. We should live every day like it's today. But regardless, even if it's a thousand years from now and this nation falls eventually, that, man, he used this nation to, to rise up and become a wealthy nation, and we sent missionaries and money all over the world that uh, the furtherance of the gospel through people from our nation has been not unheard of in human history, but I mean, it, the spread of it is is amazing, of, of where you see missionaries have gone, and so that, you know, if our citizens, citizenship is truly in heaven, that is what we take joy in, and that, that God has used the people of the country that we were born into to, to further his work, and we pray for our nation that we will be able to continue to worship freely, to 
share the gospel, to take the immense resources and blessings that God has given us and spread them. But if not, whatever is in his will, he is going to bring things to his glory, just as he always has, just as we see through uh, these nations here in ancient times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another interesting topic that you can use, how God even uses uh, things that aren't of him to to further his plan. By the time Jesus came along, Judaism was steeped in this pride that they were the people of God, that they were earning their way to favor with him through their keeping of the law. And yet, as they were spread throughout the Roman Empire they kept little enclaves in every city they were in and so when you see you know like when we read a few months ago about when Paul ministered in Thessalonica that where did he go first the synagogue they had a synagogue and that he was able to do that in every city he went to because of the Jewish people and their they're holding on to even a false pride of, of how they were getting to God but that because of that, that they had, uh, I picture a lot like, I don't mention it before, when I worked as a funeral director, we did a lot of Muslim funerals, and a lot of the ones that had come from uh, the more Middle Eastern countries had become very Americanized, that they, they worked professional jobs, and they lived in fancy houses, and they had American friends, and they had money. Um, because they had come from money in Iran and, and other places. The Somalis that came here in the 90s, uh, they, would, they, they all lived in the same apartment complexes, they all worked the same jobs. They could go back to Somalia tomorrow and fit right in like they'd never left. Uh, that's sort of what the Jewish people did as they spread. They ate the same foods, they, they worshiped their God, they kept their customs, and God used that. All right, so moving on there in this vision of of Rome uh, he said there at the end that that this beast had ten horns Um, there's some that take that number as figurative or they they spiritualize it that it doesn't have to be ten this could be so many rulers or uh, I think that Unless the context dictates it, you take it. You take numbers literally. Uh, almost every other number in Daniel, I think. Actually, I can't think of one that would be a metaphorical or a spiritual reference. So this is ten, and I think that these are rulers that are yet to come. And while the Roman Empire did fall a long, long time ago, and it lost any influence at all. Uh, over 700 years ago that um, that either metaphorically or literally that God is is viewing these the, the kingdoms at the end as they, they, they are pictured throughout scripture as the Roman this is a, a picture of the Roman Empire as it continues and so these these ten rulers are I think ten contemporaneous rulers that will be 
in charge of the leading nations at the end of times. Uh, and we'll see some of that from the context as we, we continue on here. Verse 8, he continues to say, And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man, and the mouth uttering great boasts. So Daniel sees this eleventh horn come out of the beast, which displays three of the horns. I saw a time-lapse video not long ago of a, an elk regrowing one of its antlers. It was fascinating <laughs> how quickly they, they come up. Uh, but this isn't like that. Like, you know, this isn't uh, like this animal has shed a horn and a new one comes into its place. That it, it is coming out, and to make room for it, three of them, are displaced, and so when this this ruler comes, he is going to displace three of the rulers. The other seven are still there, uh, but he has taken prominence. And it says that this horn itself had human eyes, which are are symbolic in Scripture of intelligence, and it had a mouth that was able to speak. And what it's picturing there is, is this this horn is boastful. Uh, this horn is a picture of the Antichrist. That's as these ten rulers of this terrible beast are there, that the Antichrist will rise out of that. And then Daniel's vision changes pretty drastically. He says, I kept looking until, the throne, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Uh, and so in, I don't know if it, if it does it in your translation. In, in my translation, it, it, these are formatted as poetry. It's in, in phrase form, uh, which denotes that when Daniel wrote this in the original, he is switching from Or it's in the original language in Aramaic that he wrote this, that, that these, these verses are set aside and they are, they are different, they're distinct in their literary style. Um, and what makes them different is that Daniel has this vision of all of these things that are happening on the earth, of the sea being churned up and these beasts, and all of that is on the earth. And then all of a sudden he is getting a vision of heaven. The thrones being set up and the, the ancient of days who is God the Father uh, ready to sit on his throne. There are some translations that I think the original KJV, some others say that the thrones were, were cast down. I don't think that's a, a good translation. Is that they were set up. This is happening in heaven. The, the thrones weren't cast down to earth. That doesn't make sense with with what we see going on in the context here, but that this is going on in heaven, that the one who is sovereign, the one who has control over all things, even these beasts that he is having his vision of, that they rise and fall according to his will, that he is the one that is sitting on the throne. 
We saw something very similar in, in Revelation in chapter 1 and chapter 4 and chapter 20, among others, where John is given these visions of the throne room of God. Um, and that is what Daniel is getting a vision of here. And again, the, the Ancient of Days here is, is God the Father. Um, down in verse 13, we, we see God the Son. And so Daniel then sees God take his seat on the heavenly throne. And the title that he uses for God here, the Ancient of Days, stresses God's eternality. That he, he has always existed, he will always exist. Just as in the vision of the statue that, that his kingdom will go on forever, that that can happen because of who God is. And that is what he is describing there, just even in his name of being the Ancient of Days. And his, his pure white clothing pictures his purity and his holiness and his pure woolly hair suggests his mature judgment I think that that you know we see it with uh, King Saul and, and when Israel wanted to have a king so they could be like the nations around them they chose someone they thought looked like a king it didn't matter what the condition of his heart was. And as people, we is, I think, because we were created to worship the one that is greater than all of us, that we, we seek to follow people who uh, have the look. You know, it's, just, it's something that, that we are naturally, we tend to do because, because of how we were created. And now here Daniel gets this picture of the one that, the only one that is worthy to be followed, and the only one that is worthy to reign, and that is God himself. Daniel sees his throne blazing with fire. Uh, the literal translation is that is a burning flame. Uh, in the time that Daniel wrote this, fire would have been symbolic of knowledge, purity. Also throughout scripture, it is uh, a picture of, of judgment. The fact that his throne had wheels is, is probably an implication that that God sitting on his throne is not limited, that he can he can be anywhere, he can do anything, that God is not limited as, as a human king to being on his throne and being stationary, but this throne of God is is and can be anywhere, that God is, is sovereign over all. And he can do as he pleases. Verse 10 says, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Uh, this is quite the, the picture that he sees, but this, this river of fire uh, in Revelation, and we, when John gets the, the, the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, it, from God's throne in the New Jerusalem, there is this this river of water that is uh, takes us back to John four and, and Jesus offering water that that will spring up into eternal life, um, and that is the the picture of eternity. This is before that, and this river of fire that is coming from His throne is is a picture of judgment that is coming for the earth, and those attending Him. 
we're evidently angels, this, this court seems to be this heavenly venue in which God renders judgment on rulers and their nations based on their deeds, which is what we see here when he says the books were opened, that um, the deeds of, of men will be judged. And you think about that with, with rulers who God has put into their position and they get to choose to worship him or themselves and um, you know, that their, their deeds will be punished. And, um, I had a conversation not too long ago with someone here after church about things we see happening in our world and the things that our government is pushing. And it is, as a believer uh, in Jesus Christ for eternal life, but a believer in everything that is written in this word and knowing who God is, and his value for human life because he has created us in his image it is it is devastating um, to think that that someone ruling the nation or the state or whatever that i live in that that they would be so anti-god and yet we know that in the end that god will open the books and they they will be judged and that's the picture that daniel has there in verse 11, he says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So again, in my, in my Bible, the text returns to the normal prose, that this is coming out of the vision of heaven and back to the earth and... Daniel has seen this horn that has a mouth and it has eyes and it is boasting and he is drawn again to that boasting and that that boasting is the Antichrist as he is allowed by God to to rule the whole world that, that he will be followed by everyone willfully that um, he is more boastful than any man as he is controlled by Satan who is in direct opposition to God and that draws Daniel's attention back. But God passes judgment on that fourth beast, and he destroys it along with this little horn. And again, this is, this is similar to the picture that Nebuchadnezzar gets of the hurtling stone that not have been cut by man's hands, that this is God's kingdom coming in and judging all the kingdoms of the earth. And this horn that was greater than any other ruler more boastful than any other ruler uh, is cut down verse 12 as for the rest of their beasts their dominion was taken away but extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time the end of the three prior empires contrasts with the end of this fourth one that God takes away the dominion of each of those three kingdoms one by one but they they continued as elements uh, into the kingdom that overtook them for some time. But God cuts off this fourth kingdom completely, that while they aren't all killed as the beast is, their, their time of judgment is delayed, that they are, they are completely cut off from power, that when God's kingdom comes and God establishes his rule on earth, when we, we look at the end of the tribulation, Jesus coming back and judging the earth and setting up his thousand-year reign on this earth, that there will be no other 
kingdom to um, to to try to usurp it to to be ruling over some that, that his kingdom will rule over all of the earth and so all of these kingdoms are taken away so the end of this fourth kingdom results in this this totally new condition on the earth in Jesus's thousand year reign which we saw in Revelation 19 Can we get it move on to verse well that's a good place to stop I really like the next part. I don't want to rush through it. So, uh, Any thoughts or, or questions on Daniel's vision or, or what, what he was seeing there? Um, I don't know, it's, it's what I'm going to get into this morning, but I, I find great comfort in God's sovereignty. That, and it's a good thing I'm not in charge because... <laughs> we'd be in a bad place it's a good thing that no matter who is you know whether or not it's it's true any longer but for since the end of World War II that they've pretty much called whoever was in the White House the leader of the free world it doesn't matter who that is Republican, Democrat, Conservative, Liberal God is in charge all of these things, whether Jesus comes back today or in a thousand years, that he is coming back, that these things will be made right, and that uh, we will one day have a perfect government, because Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. And that is is something to praise God for, it's something to take comfort in, and uh, it should shape the way we live our lives, because that is the kingdom we're building for. Um, And so... is comforting it is and, uh, you know I don't I don't waste a lot of my time reading stuff that um, I may find interesting but doesn't further knowledge that I want to have but you know I, I've read some things in the last few years you know that just like they've done with scripture that uh, modern scholars reinterpreting things from our founding fathers and and uh, basically trying to make them out to be a bunch of godless atheists and but you know in, in my in my thinking uh, I don't believe their interpretations of things I don't believe the way they're presenting these men but whether or not they were believers God used them to write the, the Declaration of Independence, which is the first time in human history you have a government saying that all men are created equal. That, you know, that they brought forth these things from Scripture and put them into our laws and our Constitution and all of those things that, that glorified God. And through that, God was able to to reach the world. I mean, look at the the reformations that happened within this nation and the heart of this nation and what it was able to do for God. 
And while it may be, you know, a, a quick burst of light over 200 years that seems to be dying out now, we pray that it doesn't, but we, we can thank God for that. And just like we can thank him for, for using Alexander the Great to conquer so much and in his pride to set up little beacons of Greek thinking everywhere so that by the time Jesus came, everyone spoke Greek. You know, that it's, it's him that is in control. And uh, just as was brought up a week or two ago, uh, when Andy was talking about Romans 1, just the very creation itself screams that there is a God. Well, human history does too. Uh, we worship a God who is in control, whether the, the world can see it or not, but if they can't, they're burying their heads in the sand.